Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we like to ask the hard questions about investing. Jason Hall, joined by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. We just finished a great conversation with somebody I'm a big fan of. We were lucky enough to have Jacob Goldstein come on the show with us. Yeah, I, it, that was a great interview. He's the super nice guy, author of a great book, um, Money, the True, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, right? That's yep. the title. Yep. Um, and also the uh, host of a podcast on the Pushkin Network called What's Your Problem? And he had a lot of good thoughts about the banking news we've had lately, about cryptocurrency, about what it's like to switch jobs, what it's like to start your own podcast. So it was a wide-ranging interview that that I think went really well. Yeah, stay tuned to listen for that. And in addition to that, go buy his book. It is truly all apologies to Morgan Household. Money, the true story of a made-up thing is my favorite book on money. We won't tell more. Psychology of Money sold three million. Morgan's got his. Go buy Jacob's book and uh, check out his podcast. You'll be glad you did. All right, let's get to the interview. So let me thank you so much, Jacob, for coming on the show. For those that don't know Jacob, uh, Jacob spent a long time at Planet Money, was a co-host there for over a decade. He wrote, as you know, Jacob, my favorite book about money, money, the true story of a made-up thing. And one of the one of the things that you wrote at the beginning of the book that I thought was so compelling, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today, is how how money is this 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 f- shared fiction and how what we've seen with silicon valley bank when we don't all uh, when the shared fiction kind of starts to the facade starts to crack that's when we have problems with how we think about money we can kind of talk a little bit about your book um as cuz to me i think this is one of the most compelling things about when you talk about money you have to talk about banking so Looking at everything that's happened with Silicon Valley Bank, and for for the record, we're recording this the afternoon of March 14th. So who knows what the hell's happened between now and when when you're actually going to be hearing this podcast out there. But as of right now, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank have both been taken over by the FDIC. We've seen the FDIC and the Fed also put some other things together that seem like they've kind of backstopped all of the other banks to stop runs from happening at 50 or 100 other banks. Jacob, I'm really curious, in spending a lot of time following money, banks and businesses, how do you view this moment in time when it comes to what's going on with this with this mini banking crisis we're having? I mean, it's a classic, right? It's just like your classic bread and butter bank run. The only twist is it's giant depositors instead of normal people, right? Uh, you know, we didn't have any deposit insurance to speak of in this country until the 1930s, until the Depression. And up until that time, it was super routine to have bank runs, right? And, you know, they were called panics, right? They, they when, when they were sort of spread out across multiple banks, people called them panics. And we had a panic every like 10 years in this country for a long time. And interestingly, when you don't have insured deposits, and just to be clear, most of the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were not insured, right? Because they were giant corporate deposits, startup deposits. When you don't have insured deposits, it's rational for depositors, for the people with their money in the bank to stage a bank run, right? Like if your money in the bank is not guaranteed, the first instant you think Everybody might go to the bank and try and get their money. You should run and be the first one there. You should be at the front of that line, right? Because if you're at the front of the line, you're going to get your money. And as we know, no bank has everybody's money. And so if everybody goes to the bank at once and asks for their money back, the bank's going to break. And that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, very clearly and unambiguously. Yeah, by, by the end of the day on Thursday, I think its, it's balance is... We're, we're about negative $1 billion in actual capital available to return uh, to, to, those, to those depositors. So that was clearly the case. I'm really curious, too, uh, you know, one, one of the great stories from your book, and it's right there at the beginning of the book, you share that story of when you decided you wanted to start a career in business journalism. And you have an aunt, I believe it's your aunt, 
who has an MD, MBA, and this was like the person in your family you could talk to. This was right when the, Wall Street was falling apart. And I think we had seen at least one of the big investment banks had failed and hundreds of billions of dollars in investor um, wealth had, had disappeared. And you asked, I'm going to ask you the same question that you asked your aunt, and I would like you to give me the answer. Where did the money go? And she told you. She told me money is fiction. She said it was never there in the first place. It was all just kind of made up. And that was a that was a big moment for me because I had not really studied finance or even thought that much about money. Um, but in fact, I had studied English. I was an English major in college. So fiction, like, oh, fiction, that's a thing that I know about. That's a thing that's interesting to me. Um, and, you know, I guess I had always thought that money was sort of very mathy, you know, this very sort of cold mathematical thing, because I think that's the way it's framed a lot. You know, econ is clearly a math centric discipline and, you know, quants and Wall Street and all that. But that idea that money is this thing that people sort of got together and made up and are still making up, that was interesting and exciting to me. And, you know, not long after that, I went to work at this at this podcast, Planet Money, and covered economics there for a long time. And that idea of money being fiction really resonated with me. And the more I learned, the more sense it made. So looking back, you know, cutting your teeth in that in that period of time and all of the 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 work that you've done, you know, in the roughly 15 years since then, the people in business you've talked to, the companies you've studied, following money, looking at what's happened with the banking industry. I'm curious, how do you parallels between now and the global financial crises, or maybe just the way things are different? Yeah, I think, I think in important ways, they're more different than similar. Um, let me just do one more beat on money as fiction, because I worry that like you and I have talked about that before. So I was kind of giving you the short version, but I worry that if people are listening or watching and have never heard that before, they might be like, what does he mean? Money is fiction. So let me just do like one more moment on that. And then we can talk about the financial crisis versus now. So the thing and this this I really sort of figured out as I was working on the book is that, you know, m- money feels like like part of nature, right? It feels like this thing that's like subject to, to laws and like laws of physics, right? Uh, and should behave in a certain way. But the thing I realized as I learned more about it is like, that's absolutely not true, right? It's a thing that people sort of get together in a society and make up a set of rules around um, and, and create money through those rules, basically. We will decide to, you know, accept this and not that as money. We will decide that a bank deposit is money or a bank deposit is not money, which is sort of an interesting question that has changed over time. And, and so that's what I mean by the money is fiction. Right. Um, yeah. In terms of 2008 versus today, I mean, I feel like for me and maybe for a lot of other people who sort of lived through that period, who particularly were paying attention in that period, there's always like this worry now, like every time something happens, like, oh my God, is this 2008 again? And, you know, I don't think... I think the banking system is a lot safer today than it was then. I think, you know, I don't think there is the kind of of leverage, leverage driven bubble like we had in real estate at that time. I don't think there's anything analogous today. I mean, it is. It is the case that we had this extraordinarily long period of very low interest rates that led to a lot of borrowing and then interest rates went up really fast. And that is scary. And that is you know, that dynamic is what broke Silicon Valley Bank at a certain level, right? That Mm -hmm. dynamic is what led to the losses on their balance sheet that then led to the bank run. And we can talk more about that if you want or not. But um, I don't know, it doesn't feel like 2008 to me, like certainly doesn't feel anything like the week after Lehman went bust, right? Like Silicon Valley Bank does not seem like Lehman. I saw somebody today who was like, okay, it's not Lehman, but is it Bear Stearns, right? Remember Bear Stearns <laughs> right, went bust right. six months before Lehman and like, it seemed like it was fine. And I guess it was uh, Chase, right? J.P. Morgan Chase uh, or Chase acquired, uh, I, I'm just trying to think of when Chase became J.P. Morgan Chase. Anyways, Bear Stearns went bust six months before Lehman and got acquired and everything seemed fine. And then six months later, Lehman blew up and everything blew up. So I don't know. I'm curious what you guys think. Do you guys think are you guys like 2008 level worried? I'm not. But I, should I be? 
I don't no, I, I agree with you. I think there's enough difference. And I think, you know, I read a lot about how we have to remember a lot of the people in Washington right now were, were also in Washington in 2008 and lived through that. So I think they put a lot of things in place that can't prevent all issues with banks, but are hopefully going to prevent something at the level of 2008 to happen again. Um, I, that's my very unsophisticated take on it. One, I, one thing I've been wondering, though, and I, I, there's been a lot of back and forth about whether or not the FDIC should have did what it did what it did and all that. And there's politics laid into that that we don't need to get into. But I am curious, because you mentioned earlier how we didn't have FDIC insurance until the 30s. Have you given any thought to why – I understand why like the individual – FDIC limit was a $250,000. Like that makes sense. But for businesses to be held to that same level, I mean, that that's silly. Like uh, it doesn't take a very big business to exceed that much money just in working capital they need to like do payroll. Um, have you given any thought to like whether there should be any sort of change in terms of like how much a business can be, uh, have FDIC secure uh, deposits up to? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, I think the case for limiting deposit insurance is Big depositors, in the absence of deposit insurance, could act as a check on risky behavior by the banks, right? Like, I think in this sort of idealized world, it's like, well, there is a market for uh, attracting bank deposits. And once you insure those deposits, then that market kind of fails from the, from the risk side, right? In, in a market-driven world, ideally, depositors would be scrutinizing their bank's balance sheet and would penalize a bank that was taking undue risks by moving their deposit somewhere else. Like that is definitely the theory, right? And that is always the case against deposit insurance. Now, for that world to work, you have to let those depositors lose their money when a bank fails, right? Like if you post hoc after the fact say, oh, actually those big <laughs> deposits were insured, that world is not going to work, right? And right. and the U.S. Yeah. expanded deposit insurance in the financial crisis. They just expanded it again this weekend, right? All the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank were made whole. And so I feel like you have to pick one or the other, yeah. right? The thing we have now is the one that absolutely doesn't make sense. It's the like, oh, your house burned down and you didn't have fire insurance. Well, we feel bad for you, we the government, so we're going to pay for your house. Like, you can't have a functioning insurance market if you keep jumping in and, and you know, paying for damage that people weren't insured against. So clearly the government is now, has made, has given an implicit insurance uh, plan for big deposits. And it seems like the healthy thing to do would be to make it explicit, to your point, right? Because yeah. I don't think the government can now credibly say, okay, okay, but we didn't really mean it. Next time you're really going to take a loss, right? Like, who would believe that and why should you? So it seems like the rational thing to do is raise the, basically raise the insurance limit. And it's weird how little people have talked about that. Weirdly, the only person I was looking for that. And the only person I've seen say that is Barney Frank, who A, was the author of Dodd-Frank and B, was on the board, on the board of, of Signature, Signature right. one of the banks right. that Signature, failed, yeah. sort of a lesser known right. bank that failed this week. And apparently had, had was part of the, the lobbying effort back in 2018 to get the the this, number of banks who had to pass the stress tests, you know, the uh, CIFI, lower, you know, the, lower the systemically the, important yeah. financial institutions rate right. lift, lifted to 250 billion, I believe is, or yeah. And, and we yeah. should say, I mean, just to, just to explain that, right. So yes. Yeah, so as until 2018, Silicon Valley bank and signature bank, the two banks that just failed would have been held to this higher standard mm -hmm. of, of systemically important banks. There was this lobbying and that threshold was raised to 250 billion. So there was lighter regulation, uh, effectively on these banks because they weren't automatically considered systemically important. And then the regulators rationale this weekend for bailing out the depositors, bailing out is a loaded word, but whatever, for making the depositors whole was, oh, this is, they're, they're actually systemically important. Right. So again, right. it's like, okay, so then regulate them as systemically important. Yeah. If you're going to make pick the depositors one. whole, yeah, pick one, pick one. Right. And like, just pick one. I want to. I want to take a little bit of a step back because we've. I think we've hit on some things um, that that. And as as it always is, right? We we want a simple answer. We want a simple, easy to consume explanation for these sorts of things. But let's let's be fair to the FDIC. Let's be fair to the Fed. This is this is complicated. It's one thing to let a bank fail. 
it's another thing to let the bank that did business with half of the companies that went public last year fail, right? So that's one of the things that makes this more complex maybe than we necessarily want it to be. Fair. I'm also not saying anybody did the wrong thing, yeah. you know, right. retrospectively. I mean, a couple of things. And in terms of letting the bank fail, I mean, it is important to point out that like, as a business, the banks did fail, right? right? right. Like Silicon Valley Bank basically doesn't exist anymore. The shareholders are going to get pennies on the dollar, most likely. Yeah. Or maybe zero pennies or maybe on the zero. dollar, right? Yeah. The stock right. in that company is probably worth zero. The bondholders may get pennies on the dollar. The people who work there will lose their jobs. So, right. you know, certainly the bank itself did not, the government didn't step in to save the bank. The government stepped in to save the depositors. And I'm not saying it was the wrong call. I'm just saying we, sh we should recognize that it happened and recognize the implications uh, of, of that it happened and think differently about regulation in the future based on, based on what just happened. I want to, I want to just, kind of weigh in real quickly too on the difference between 2008 and 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 now you hit on a couple things there um jacob but i think it's worth it's worth point number one we always fight the last war when it comes to regulation um when it comes to the things that we're concerned about and when we think about banking we think about all of those to coin to paraphrase buffett the tools of financial mass destruction the mortgage-backed securities um, the difference then was if we think about housing now and housing then, we had three years of extra inventory of housing and nobody to live in those houses because they were second and third houses for people that thought they were going to just get rich buying houses. And now we're maybe three years supply short of houses, right? So we're not going to see some sort of housing crisis with a bunch of bankruptcies d that are going to lead to further things. What we don't know what we don't know is how are how are people depositors business owners going to react more broadly did the fdic do enough to prevent a continue i think they have but i want to just share some this i'll be interested just to hear your reaction on this jacob um i some of the pr people at um smp um send me stuff a few times a week and they sent me an analysis that shows the percentage of uninsured, like the proportion of uninsured deposits. So, you know, dollar amounts above that 250 limit. Bank of America, 47%. Wells Fargo, 51%. This is, the, again, the key is that this is not Bank of New York, Bank of New York Mellon, 90 Ninety-seven percent. Well, bank of New York Mellon is a special case, uh, but it is. yes, it is. Uh, but but the other banks, it's shockingly high to me. Is that is that where you go? I mean, for Silicon Valley Bank was like ninety-ish percent, right? I've seen ninety-four numbers. Yeah, but ninety-four. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was I was genuinely shocked by that. Like, I had never really looked into how mm -hmm. you know companies keep their money, but I had assumed it was not in giant uninsured bank deposits. Is that where you're going with this? I was surprised. I really, yeah, I really was. Same. So but I mean, like, I, you know, clearly what the what the government did this weekend was telling everybody like, I mean, that's sort of the like. Basically, the government this weekend issued a, a blanket implicit insurance guarantee for all those deposits. Right. They didn't come out and say that. But like that is a wildly reasonable inference for anyone to have. What I think is interesting about that data is <clears throat> the banks that have the deposit that percentage closer to. 40-50% are the larger ones that are subject to the stress test we just talked about. I'm curious, like what would Silicon Valley, um, the the Bank of New York one that you just mentioned, um, I wonder what they would have looked like in 2012, 2013, 2015, like prior to that change in the legislation. Like, would they have been closer to 40-50% because they would have been in that within that threshold? Um, I know you don't have that data, yeah, but that's I mean, something I, I thought about. It might also just be a function of like the giant banks are where all the normal people have their money and right. normal people don't have more than $250,000 right. in the bank. Right. Wait, you and guys like, don't. I, Cause I totally uh, do. <laughs> just cause you never know, right. You never know. Right. Liquidity never know. is important. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the banks, there are a lot of banks that normal people haven't heard of that bank for comp that, that are company banks, right. That are banks for companies and that offer service for companies or for very rich people. Um, 
Yeah, th- I mean, that is a very interesting piece of it. And like, you know, to, to go back to the sort of big picture, like bank runs are essentially as old as banks, right? And and you can have a bank run on a totally fine bank. And, you know, the, the fear always is you'll have one bank where something bad actually happens, like in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, where they made this, you know, where they bought these long dated bonds. They were safe bonds, but they had long maturities. And then interest rates went up and the bonds lost value. And suddenly the bank's balance sheet is a mess and it's rational for everybody to go take their money out. And then the fear is that it won't be limited to that, right? And the regulator's mm-hmm. argument in, in making the depositors whole was like, we're afraid that everybody is going to run on their bank all around America. They didn't say that, but when they are invoking this systemic, you know, risk reason for making uninsured depositors whole, that's what they're saying. And uh, I think they solved it. I mean, again, there's the longer question of like, what's going to happen next? I mean, there's also, you know, the other piece just to go back to the 2008 versus now thing, like the other piece about 2008 was the essential sort of financial run. There was a run, a kind of bank run in 2008, but it wasn't a run on the traditional banking system. It was a run on the shadow banking system that had sort of turned into a banking system without anybody knowing it, right? Uh, which is is semi-arcane stuff, right? It's like the repo markets mm-hmm. and investment banks, which were not at the time actually banks, uh, and money market mutual funds, which are maybe, you know, more familiar to to your listeners and viewers, right? Which is sort of the the retail person's kind of entree to that shadow banking world was money market mutual funds. And there was a huge run on money market mutual funds the week Lehman went bust. And the first mutual fund ever invented, the reserve fund, actually broke it. it they broke the buck and it was just a bank run. And so a thing I don't know that much about at this point is like, where where is that shadow banking money now, right? And shadow banking basically meaning this basic function of banking of, well, maturity transformation is the really important part, right? You give them a dollar, they say, you can have your dollar back anytime you want. And then they take it and they lend it out to somebody for, even it could be just a few months, but a few months is enough to mess things up it's if that, everybody wants that, their money back location between between where your money is and when you need it. Yeah, like if everybody asked for their money today, every bank goes, every bank is susceptible bank. to a bank run. Every bank is susceptible. What's interesting is there are non-banks that create structures that are susceptible to a run, right? Like money market mutual funds, for example. Right. You give them a dollar and you know the whole premise of of money market funds is your dollar's always worth a dollar and they pay you interest. So it feels a lot like a bank deposit. Right. But like a bank, they're taking your money and lending it out. Now, they're not lending it out for as long as a bank typically, and they're pretty heavily regulated. But in fact, they are runnable. There is maturity mm-hmm. transformation going on there. Right. And it's, it's that leverage. And we see it in other, other industries like home builders that buy a bunch of land and then housing goes into a recession and they have a bunch of land and nobody to buy houses and yeah. they have a bunch of debt. So the same yeah. thing happens in other industries, yeah. Jacob. I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm curious about with, with your podcast, um, which I've really enjoyed, by the way, it's called, called What's Your Problem? You spend time talking. A lot of the people that you're talking to are entrepreneurs um, or scientists or just really smart people that have taken an idea and generally turned it into a business of some sort, and they're trying to solve some sort of a problem. But generally, they're like the prototypical Silicon Valley bank customer. And I'm curious if anything, what has this kind of kind of maybe shaken the foundations a little bit of, of like the startup culture of what you might've, what you might be exposed to? I mean, I think the bigger shift has been not, it's not the effect of, of the Silicon Valley bank bus, but rather the underlying, the initial problem for Silicon Valley Bank was the rapid rise in interest rates, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that... And the corresponding is, freeze in venture capital activity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just uh, hasn't even come out on the show yet, but I, I, I was talking with uh, this guy, Glenn Kelman, who I've talked to before. Mm-hmm. He's the CEO of Redfin, this big, big fan of Glenn. real he's estate. Wonderful. Yeah, he's wonderful. great, right? So interesting and thoughtful. Um so I had talked to him a year ago, and it's actually just the one-year anniversary of the show this month. So we're doing like some follow-ups. Fantastic. And yeah, yeah, it's fun. So I was talking to Glenn about iBuying, right, which is this business that Redfin was in and Zillow was in, and there are a couple of sort of pure play companies. And it's basically, you know, 
you guys know this already, but you can. It's been an uh, abject failure for the companies that have tried to scale <laughs> yes. it up to a national well, business. L- let's say what it is. So what it is, is you can go online. If you own a house, you can go online, type in some things about your house and get an offer from one of these big companies. These big companies will basically pay cash for your house on the spot. And they will pay, you know, the idea is they pay a little bit of a discount to what uh, you could get if you listed it with the real estate agent. And that's a sort of in exchange for the convenience of getting the money right now. And then they turn around and try and flip it and, you know, make a profit on top of their costs. Right. Um, And uh, Zillow famously lost a, you know, just a ton of money on it. Um, Redfin got out last year. They lost a little, but not nearly as much as Zillow. So talking to Glenn, so I talked to Glenn about that when he was in the business, and I just talked to him about getting out. And that story is really an interest rate story, right? As is so yeah. much of the of the tech boom, right? Is we almost forgot how weird it was that we lived through 10 years of essentially zero percent interest rates, right? Like by the end of the teens or the beginning of the pandemic, it was truly bizarre, right? We were at this moment when Interest rates were basically zero. Unemployment was as low as it's more or less ever been, low as it had been in decades. And inflation was like very, very low. And you shouldn't be able to have all three of those things at once, right? But that uh, ultra low interest rate environment was what allowed iBuying to work, right? Because it's so capital intensive. The companies are borrowing money to buy houses, to buy whole houses by the by the hundred. Like that's so capital intensive. And the only reason the business could work was because people were essentially throwing free capital at them. This is but one of those a, things where money yeah. really is math. When your cost of capital is that low and you're using yeah. that much leverage, you can boost your returns in order of magnitude yes. until you and, can't. And also you can make bets that might not pay off for 10 years, right? Like another thing I was talking about, like if the discount rate is zero, it's like, sure, take as long as you want, just grow and you'll figure it out. Right. Um, And that was the like semi-hidden force that drove so much of the influx of capital to Silicon Valley over the sort of teens boom and the rise in interest rates and the, you know, repricing of risk and the rising discount rate. Uh, you know, I mean, if you can lend your money to the government for uh, six months and get 5%, like that's pretty good. Maybe I won't give it all to Sequoia to go invest in startups now. Right. And like, so that is, I think, the big shift in the universe of the other people I'm talking to on What's Your Problem. And Glenn's really good on that. He's, he's really interesting about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so looking. can I? Go ahead, Jeff. I... I wanted to pivot to a different topic only because it ties directly into the two things we've been talking about. So the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and also the low interest rate environment we've lived in for the past 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And that's cryptocurrency. Because I one of the things that has grown up and become a thing in that low interest rate environment is crypto it, to, to the extent that it has. And, and the last failures of of big companies we've seen prior to this week or past week were, you know, um, so, um, Silver King Capital. Blank. Yeah, Silver King. And then the SBF's company. Oh, S, uh, FTX, FTX, right? FTX, yeah. That collapsed. So as someone who's written a book literally about money and how it's this fake made-up thing that we all sort of agree on, like just globally to start Oh, it's off, a real Jacob, thing. Like, well, it's just made up. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's, sorry. Yeah. Made up, but it's real. But like, what, what has your been, what has been your observation, Jacob, of like the crypto world just generally as it sort of has come up over the past 10 plus years? Yeah. Well, I say one other thing. I mean, you mentioned that crypto ties into the things we're talking about. One other thing it ties into that we've been talking about is the financial crisis of 2008, right? Like the, the, um, this, you know, Satoshi's famous Bitcoin white paper, uh, came out, in the fall of 2008, uh, right as Lehman Brothers was collapsing and the, you know, famously the first block of, uh, well, the first block of the blockchain, right? The the Genesis block, the first, whatever, Bitcoin ever minted in the sort of notes to the code, he writes this headline from the Times of London about a bank bailout. So it's very much uh, in keeping with these broader themes, right? And so I think, first of all, the fact that crypto was essentially invented then is not a coincidence. People had been trying to solve the technical problems for a long time, but it was a good time to invent a new kind of money that, you know, 
that pro- that that claimed and claimed with some justification that you didn't need to trust intermediaries like banks or governments, right? Like 2008 is the perfect time to come up with that idea or to present it to the world. Um, and, you know, I started covering it in 2011. So early, right? Like early enough that I should have bought more of it, obviously. Um, <laughs> that's um, hindsight bias, Jacob. Yeah, it's hindsight <laughs> bias. Um, but like, it's fun. It's fun hindsight bias. Um, you know, I'll tell you, here's the really interesting thing to me. So, you know, I thought when we started covering it that like, okay, this probably won't work, but it's interesting. And either it'll work and be a big deal or it won't work and it'll go away. The thing I never would have guessed was like tens of billions of dollars will flood into it and it won't really work for anything, but like people will keep working on it. Like that is the really surprising outcome to me. Like, and I'm not saying it'll never work, but like it clearly hasn't worked in the way that the people who are promoting it wanted it to work, right? Like it could work. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, technical problems with like the number of transactions per second or whatever on different cryptocurrencies solve that in different ways. There's various trade-offs, but like, it seems like a reasonable idea, but it is shocking to me how long it's been around for, how little mainstream success it has had as anything but a casino, right? Like clearly it has worked as a speculative asset, but it like, you know, the Bitcoin people do compare it to gold, but gold is weird, right? Like gold is a weird, basically useless thing to compare your asset to. And it's certainly not what the people who invented Bitcoin dreamed it would be. Yeah, we we have a mutual friend, Jason and I, who's a very, um, very crypto like he's a he's a believer he thinks it's going to be the future it acknowledges we're not there yet to your point but one of the things that i kind of push back on and i want to hear your thoughts on it too is you know you had mentioned earlier as we were talking about the whole concept of money generally is that people have to agree that it is worth something and what i wonder with cryptocurrencies if we're going to think of them as um a currency right because i know you People argue it's a store of value, it's a currency, it's something else. But if we think of it as an actual currency or an alternative to all the stuff we've been talking about, no inter- intermediaries, I can transact with you and that's it. Um, what do you think about the fact that the people who decide what money is are very powerful right now, You know, are powerful people and have an incentive to make sure that you know, fiat currency stays you know, the dominant way that we exchange goods? Like, Have you given any thought to that? I have. And like... I mean, namely, chief chief among those people, in my view, are the people running the governments of the world, right? I mean, you might be thinking of like rich people and the people who run banks. No, I'm thinking governments. That's exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, governments, you know, banks have a very important role in in creating money in our current system, but, but the government is fundamentally the center of the fiat currency universe. And like, they are not gonna wanna give that up, right? And I think there's some element of the sort of, you know, maximalist crypto dream that says, well, it's not up to the governments, right? If all the people get together and decide, and that is true at some level, but I think most people don't care that much, right? I think, you know, you see, like one of the things I talk about in the book is you see, you know, you do see monetary regimes change a lot in like typically moments of great crises, right? Like the depression was when we went off the gold standard, right? Not a coincidence. The gold standard was making the depression worse, sort of causing the depression. And we went off the gold standard. It was a huge deal, more than people even realize, I think. But in most times, most people don't care, right? And certainly the government doesn't want to let go of money uh, and the power over money. It does seem, I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me in crypto over the last few years, even before the, you know, recent fall in prices over the last year or two, also tied to rising interest rates, obviously, um, was the way people stopped saying cryptocurrency and started saying crypto. And it was like kind of became a distinction between like, if you're like a cool tech person, you say crypto. And if you're like kind of a crankish gold buggy weirdo, you say cryptocurrency. Maybe I'm I'm overstating it, but, and you know, A, crypto is shorter and it maybe sounds cooler, but also people stopped talking about the, stopped talking about it being money, right? Right. Like they talk about like, trust on the internet or uh, that kind of thing. And like, I'm open, you know, like I bought a house, I paid for title insurance. Like I hate paying for title insurance. Like what am I even paying for? Right. Like to make sure that I actually own the house that I just bought. Like that's ridiculous. Like, can we put our house titles on the blockchain? Great. 
Can we make, you know, remittances cheaper for people who go across the world and want to send money back to their families? Great. Like, you know, like that's this, this show that I'm hosting now, like, what's your problem? It's about technological progress and not so much in the maximalist way, but in the like people trying to just make these incremental productivity gains, basically like this boring thing that's at the heart of economic growth and of rising living standards. And like that side of crypto, I, I want to work, right? Like I want the things that'll just make everybody better off. And the lack of that has kind of been disappointing to me. Yeah. And that's the, you know, Jason and I have talked about it on this podcast various times. And I think we're in agreement that that's also, we're, we're the same way where we think that is the future of it. Like there will be some way in which it is helpful for things like, you know, putting your, your title on the blockchain or smart contracts in, in other places or concert tickets that where we don't have to pay all the fees to Ticketmaster, right? Whatever yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. Um, there will be uses for it. It'll just, it, but I, I think you bring up a good point that it's funny that it's stuck around for as long as it has without actually finding one of those well, and mainstream drew in uses so yet. much money, right? Like lots of yeah, things are like, yeah. oh, weirdo hobbyists work on this or that forever. But the weirdo hobbyists don't end up, you know, luring in billions and billions of dollars. Like that's the extraordinary thing that happened in this instance. Um, and, you know, I've, I've read crypto people talking about welcoming the decline in prices, like the people who just like working on the technology and were tired of all the, you know, grifters just trying to ride in on their NFT unicorns and make a buck. Right. <laughs> yeah, it has found its place as a speculative uh, playground yes. for sure. Yes. The, the one thing, Jacob, the one thing that I kind of go back on, and it's not a perfect comparison, but we think about the internet was, was first created in the early 1980s. Right. And it was two decades before we were actually using the Internet in functionally beneficial ways. And it was a convenient tool to use. And like we didn't have to. Hey, mom, can you get off the phone? I need to get out. You know, we didn't have to do all this stuff to get on the Internet. And then the Internet was great and convenient and made our lives better. And it is it is. That's the question is with crypto. When is when is all of all of that going to going to happen? And we'll we'll see. Yeah, I mean, on a related note, you know, one of the, I mean, there was the internet for a long time, and then there was the web for a few years before anybody figured out what to do with it. And yeah. I'm old oh, enough yeah. to remember that era, which is basically the kind of early to mid '90s, right? Yeah, um, no, the people on were just they were just nerdy hobbyists. It was, you know, that's that was it. That was it. And I, the first, I think, I think the first, or at least the first I remember, killer app for the web was web-based email which is like hard to even understand now. But before then, like email was like an application that you had on your computer and you would like download your emails onto your computer. And if you weren't on your computer, you couldn't email, right? right. And then Hotmail came along in the, I don't know, 90s. And it suddenly was like, wow, I can email anywhere. And like, it's not, it's not, that complicated and it sounds kind of boring, but it was a huge deal. And that's yeah. kind of what I'm hoping for out of crypto. And it probably was really complicated what it took to do it in the background. But it, then when it, might it happened, have been hard to make, or it might've been that nobody one thought point, of it. Probably it. Was. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> right. sure. Right. I mean, it right. might've just also been that like, you know, it's like whatever your peanut butter and my chocolate. Like it just took a few years for somebody to be like email <laughs> web browser, right? Like those things that seem obvious in retrospect, just take a while sometimes. All, all I know is that the <clears> first <throat> time I saw an email get sent, it blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> email. I mean, I, email I, I don't itself, think kids like, yeah, it, it just it blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Email, email was, you know, when you were talking about the internet was around for a while, before we knew what to do with it. I think email was pretty early. It definitely predated the web by, by some amount of time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about your show. So yes, let's get an old man technology hour. Has, has <laughs> gone on too long. Yeah. You know, anyone younger than us is like, what are they talking <laughs> why, about? Why are they still talking about this? So I made a wireless set. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Jacob, what drew you to wanting to start what's your problem um well i've been i've been making planet money for about 10 years which is a long time to do anything and it was great uh and i liked it but i felt i started to feel like i was doing the same thing again and again a little bit and um 
you know, there was this podcast boom. I was a little late for the podcast boom. I don't think I timed the podcast boom quite right. I should have started my podcast a few years ago. You started at least six months before we did. So I think, I think your timing was perfect. I've got bad news for you. You're late. You're late. Sorry. (laughs) We all should have started five years ago. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed our final episode. (laughs) Great. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I wanted to try something different. I also, so, you know, I left NPR, Planet Money was at NPR, and like there's like a spectrum of, there was a risk spectrum sort of presented to me, right? At one end was staying at NPR, which you might say, well, they're legacy media, are they safe? But yeah, NPR's going to be around for a while. That yeah. felt very safe. I was in a union, people liked me, whatever. Uh, the far end of the risk spectrum, I was talking to different people, and one of the people I was talking to was like, why don't you start your own production company? Right. That would have been the true like risk seeking entrepreneurial move. Go start a podcast company. But that was more risk than I was looking for. You know, I have a mortgage and kids and all of the boring middle aged things that I like. And so I just it would have stressed me out too much to do that. Like, I don't think I would have enjoyed my life if I was doing that. And so I this company Pushkin that I ended up going to work for was an interesting middle ground. Right. They were one of the few sort of going concern kind of, you know, big enough podcast companies that hadn't yet been acquired. There had been this wave of acquisitions where big companies like Spotify uh, bought up lots of independent podcast companies. So Pushkin is still startup-ish. It was about 50 people when I joined. It's, I don't know, 70-ish now. And this is just um, to drop a name that people will know. Malcolm Gladwell is one of the co-founders of, of Pushkin. That's right. That's right. He Malcolm Gladwell started it with this guy, Jacob Weisberg, who used to run Slate, the online magazine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, the, they had launched a podcast, Gladwell had launched a podcast at Slate, and then he he left and took it with him, and they sort of built Pushkin. Revisionist with, history. Re, revisionist history, which is still still going, a great show, kind of still the flagship show for Pushkin. Uh, and so for me, you know, going to a new place, going to a more entrepreneurial place, uh, but not so much risk of, like, starting my own company, and also, not at all trivially, like, Everybody I talk to, you know, the podcast sort of industry, such as it is, is pretty small. And I'd been around long enough to just like know people who knew people there. And I knew one guy there. And everybody I talked to said, oh, yeah, they're great. They're nice people. They do good work. And like also maybe a function of being middle aged is like that's super important to me now. Like I just whatever. I don't care enough to work with mean people or something. Do you know what I mean? Like I just want to work with people who are nice to each other. And so it just it just seemed like a good fit, frankly. I wanted, I wanted a little more action, but not a crazy amount of action. And Pushkin and starting my own show offered the right amount of action. No, I, I appreciate that. I, th- I think that's one of the things that maybe d- people don't put enough thought into when they're looking to make a change. You know, in your situation, maybe you've got a little bit of that, like you were talking about, you know, it's, it's time to do something different, spread your wings, take on a little bit of risk. But thinking about the people you're going to be spending most of your waking hours with that you're not related to, um, maybe one of the most important parts of making making that decision. So I want to say, so having having gone through that, um, you know, you walk away from a lot of long term relationships with people at at NPR that you'd worked with for a long time. How do you do? You, do you feel like you've so you you leave some of that behind? How, do you feel like you've how, how has it been like replacing, replacing that? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about Planet Money, and particularly the show that I, I hosted at NPR, was a lot of people had left Planet Money as well. Like, I have some very good friends there still, and I'm actually working on something with them now, and, and I think they're great. But, like, all of the people who were there when I got there were gone by the time I left, right? So, you know, institutions persist, but people move on, especially, I think, if you're working at at somewhere that is kind of dynamic or entrepreneurial and within the not very entrepreneurial universe of NPR, Planet Money was pretty entrepreneurial. It was different when it started. It attracted people who wanted to do something different. There was this podcast boom. So there was like, you know, labor demand. You could go do something else. One of the guys I worked with started a company and sold it, started a podcast company and sold it. So a lot of the people I had worked with had left. Um, So that made it easier, right? If, If I had like my, you know, work family that had I'd been with for 10 years, maybe I wouldn't have left. I don't know. Um, 
for a while, when, when I started my new show, What's Your Problem? I, in fact, was able to hire as an editor for a while, uh, Robert Smith, one of the guys I worked with for a long time at Planet Money. He's now teaching and kind of freelancing. So he helped me get the show going. So that was a way to like have some of that old relationship like you're talking about at the new place. Um, but yeah, I like the people I work with. And, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things has been shifting, and this is a longer term thing, but when I started at Planet Money, I didn't know anything about podcasts. I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal before. And like now I've been making podcasts for whatever, 12 years or something, which for podcasts is a really long time. I guess kind of a long time to do anything. And so to to become the guy who knows what he's doing after being the guy who's like my dad is like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just along for the ride. Like that's kind of interesting. And like being, you know, part of my job at Pushkin is being the executive producer on other shows and sort of guiding people is like interesting and different and new. And so did, like it. when you went to Pushkin, Jacob, did you come with the idea for what's your problem? Or was that something that you, you kind of developed with the people there? I came with the idea. I mean, the basic model, and this was also a kind of um, diversification to reduce risk strategy, right? Like to go back to the, like, how much risk did I want? You know, the truth is my favorite part of my job is is being a podcast host. Like, I really like it. It's fun. And when I'm doing it, I don't think about other things, right? Which I like. It's it's engaging. Um, but I was scared that, like, I'd launch a show and it wouldn't be big enough to justify being a whole job, right? So uh, fortunately, and it took a while. Like, I was talking to Pushkin for a while before they finally hired me. But the, the way sort of what we worked out was like, I would host this show and I would help them essentially build a little division, a little group doing business and tech shows. So, you know, uh, we did a show um, last year with the Financial Times called Hot Money that was about like the business of porn and weirdly the power that the credit card companies have over the porn business. And we're working on another season of that now and developing some other things. So it's been a pretty good balance. Like, you know, in some ways now I'm a middle manager, which is like nobody dreams of being a middle manager. But like the upside of that is like I get to help people and like try and make their experience at work be nice and teach them how to make podcasts. And that's all fun. Sounds like you also get to work on a lot more things than you would actually be able to get to work on if you were just working on your podcast. Yeah, that's true. You know, there was a guy who was uh, my editor for a while at Planet Money who had been a, a journalist before. He was an editor at Business Week and had written magazine stories. And I asked him why he went from being a writer to being an editor. And he said, you know, as a writer, I felt like I was just solving the same problem over and over again. And I wanted to, like, work on different kinds of problems. And so I tell myself that when I'm, like, dealing with some, like, management thing. And I'm like, why am I dealing with some management thing? I'm not a manager. No. Okay. It's a new kind of problem. I'm learning about how to deal with people. Whatever. I have a, I have a question about thinking about, you know, coming from NPR, we think about NPR, we think about journalism, right? Um, a lot of invest, great investigative journalism that comes out of NPR reporting the news versus editorial opinion and podcasting is a little bit different, but I'm curious as somebody that has so much of a background coming from NPR, but also being so deeply enmeshed in podcasts, thinking about the balance between journalism and podcasting. And I think as, as an example, um, one of the earlier guests on your show last year was Sam Bankman fried of course, one of the founders of, of FTX, massive fraud, um, and you did something that I thought was really admirable. You could have simply pretended that that episode had never happened and continued to talk with other wonderful entrepreneurs, but you made a decision, I think last November, to go back and to revisit that episode and to play selected parts of it and then talk about what actually happened, what Sam Bankman-Fried was doing and what was going on in the background. I'd love to hear more thoughts from you on that. And again, specifically thinking again about that balance between just talking to people about what they're doing and uh, as a pot with podcasting versus where, where journalism kind of comes in. Yeah, that's interesting and complicated, right? Uh, I mean, there is some fundamental level where it's not different, right? And that is like, I want it to be true and fair. Um, and that's true, whether it's a podcast or whether I was, you know, writing an article for the Wall Street Journal or whatever. Um, 
I mean, the Sam Bankman Freed thing, I think lots of very straight traditional journalists got snowed in the same way I did by Sam Bankman Freed, right? Yeah. Um, and I would have gotten snowed by him if I was working at NPR. I mean, one of the interesting things about him, like is he was the only crypto guy I've talked to on the show because he seemed more straight, right? It was like, oh, he's just running an exchange. Like he's not pretending like he's doing a thing that he's not. He's just running an exchange and taking a commission. Like that seems like a reasonable business. It's, you know, obviously it was not. And I was wrong. I have some comfort in being like everyone, you know, was one wrong. of a million people who was wrong. Right. right. And so the way I handled that particular thing, I don't think it was that different. I could have imagined doing something like that at Planet Money and, you know, going back to it and revisiting it. Um, I mean, one thing that is different and that I think about a fair bit is to some extent, and Planet Money is a little different, but certainly like it, when I was writing for the Wall Street Journal or I was a newspaper reporter before that, um, you know, your training if you're a newspaper reporter is to take yourself out of it, right? To, to not be in the story at all, not use the first person, that kind of thing. And when you're hosting a podcast, you should be in it, right? Like you should be often to some extent, the reason people are listening is for the host, right? Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to be in it in a useful way, how to have a point, how to make an argument. Like, I actually think my show, one of the weaknesses of my show as a whole, not necessarily episode to episode, but is like, it's like, yes, I talk to people who are trying to make technological progress and I try and really understand what they're working on. And like, that's fine. And it's interesting. But like, I feel like the show might sort of, be a better package if it had a clearer argument or a clearer focus or something like that was less kind of passive and newsy. And, you know, so in that way, being sort of less traditionally journalistic and more maybe essayistic or more having an argument or more of a point of view, I think I would benefit from being less like a traditional journalist in those ways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So right here, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. Jacob's pivoting his entire podcast. But what am I pivoting to? Where are we going? We'll help you figure it out. We'll do, we'll okay. just, we'll stay here okay. till we get it nailed down okay. and then you'll be fine. Okay. One last question. And in, in a way, I think you, this, you, this may be what you just said, Jacob, what's your problem? What's the hardest problem you were faced with starting a new podcast? You know what? Let's do this. Let's do, let's yeah, don't do what you haven't solved. Answer. What's the hardest problem that you had to deal with that you figured out and that you've already solved? Oh, I want to do the one I haven't solved yet first. I mean, we can do the haven't figured out. But the, I mean, I'll tell you, honestly, it's like boring, but true. It's like how to get more people to listen to the show. Yeah. Right. Like it's hard to launch a podcast now. And Same. Would, it's hard. And like <laughs> I would love to be able to make a living hosting What's Your Problem? Like I, you know, I would love for the show to make enough money that I could do that. And the simple way to do that is to get more people to listen. I mean, there are other ways to do that. Like we're just soon going to make it available for subscribers. We can get a lot of subscribers, you know, there's different ways, but I do think, so here's a thing I've been thinking about in terms of, of podcasts, and maybe we can think of a way to make it interesting beyond podcasts. It's, I think the, I think the market for general interest podcasts is oversupplied at this point, right? Like there yeah. are more yeah. general interest podcasts than there are general interest listeners. And so my theory that I haven't yet tested is like, the way to launch a podcast now is to be really niche, right? Like find, start with some audience. You find a cottage industry, right? Underserved. And ideally that is like interesting to you, the host. In my case, that is interesting to me. And like, fortunately, there's lots of things that are interesting to me. And I'm interested in pretty technical things. I'm interested in like actually figuring out how things work and start a podcast for like some specific 50,000 people who are doing something interesting and who some who either will pay for your podcast. I think that's the cleanest, right? A subscription model seems more elegant than an advertising-based model, but who either will pay for your podcast or who advertisers will pay you to reach. Um, and I haven't been able to try that yet, either for myself or for someone else, but I'd like to. And, uh, you know, with respect to what's your problem, there's a really simple thing that I'm trying now, 
that I haven't really done before. And that is, you know, my kind of internal pitch for the show was like, it's actually about the people trying to make technological progress, right? Like they're trying to solve problems that nobody in the world knows how to solve. And there's this big idea, which is in the long run, the only way we raise living standards is by, you know, making progress, making technological progress, becoming more efficient. And I want to do the show about that work actually happening. And then kind of foolishly, I don't think I ever actually said that on the show. Um, and so I'm trying to talk about that more now on the show and just say, this is what the show is about. This is the big, exciting idea behind the show. So I guess that's sort of the threshold. Like the problem I haven't solved is how to get more people to listen. The problem I sort of have solved, and it seems so obvious, and yet it, I didn't solve it until now, is like, tell the world what the show is about and why I'm excited to be making it. Well, this will be, this will be our first test case. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to publish this gonna, as a podcast. You're send me through the roof. And we're going to include this, right? You're going okay. to see dozens of listeners. Literally at dozens. Least at least dozens. At least clock, dozens. Clock. Yeah. Listen, I look at the numbers closely enough that I would notice dozens. So I'll take <laughs> dozens. Awesome. Awesome. I do, enjoy, I do enjoy the podcast. I'm a regular listener. I encourage people to check it out. Jacob, you ready to do a lightning round? Or oh, as yeah. I like to, Yeah. Or as I like to call egregiously stealing from Jacob's podcast. I didn't invent the lightning round. I don't own it. And I think everybody should do it. Love it. Love it. Jeff. All right. So you have some free time. What's better listening to a podcast or reading a book? I mean, I'll be honest. I listen to podcasts when I don't have free time. I listen to podcasts when I'm jogging and cleaning the kitchen. Those are my two main use cases. So if I actually have free time, I'll read a book. Yeah, I know this isn't about me, but I will echo that because I am much more productive with like household chores because it's my excuse to listen to a podcast. Yeah, it's nice. So. Well, and frankly, like a lot of my job now is listening to like mixes, you know, drafts of of podcasts that I'm making or that other people are making. And so I, I actually find myself like busying myself. Like if I'm at the office and I have to listen, I'll go like walk around because just like sitting and listening to a podcast, I can't do it. Can't do it. Have, nope. Has has listening to podcasts kind of become work for you, or like you just can't enjoy a good podcast now? Uh, I enjoy a different kind of podcast, honestly. You know, I spend a, a lot of Planet Money is not about information, but about sort of storytelling and craft. Right. And yeah. I am candidly like, I listen to fewer sort of craft storytelling podcasts now, and I listen to more just like I want to learn stuff podcasts now. All right. Well, that's gonna be that's gonna be the next question here. What's your favorite? Not the smattering, obviously. And also Honestly. not Pushkin. I don't want you to feel like you have to say something for the people that sign your paychecks. What's your sure. favorite non-Pushkin Well, podcast? number one in my heart, of course, is Planet Money because that's yeah. you know, my like, podcast home originally. But I'll tell you two that I've been into lately because I just kind of cycle through podcasts. Uh, one is The Town, which is a podcast. It's a joint venture between Puck and The Ringer. And it's about like the business of Hollywood, basically. Mm -hmm. It's about like the streaming services and the Hollywood studios. But what they've done cleverly is they've taken the kind of smart sports talk format of The Ringer and applied it to business, in this case, to the entertainment industry. Um, and it works really well. Like, I'm not that interested in the entertainment industry, but I'm relatively interested. It's kind of adjacent to podcasts. And this guy, Matt Bellany, who's the host, he used to be the editor of The Hollywood Reporter. So he knows what he's talking about. So let's just say that one, The Town. Love it. All right, last one here. Um, what guest have you had on your podcast that has blown you away, exceeded your expectations, or surprised you the most? Oh, that's fun. Uh, well, let me think. Uh, I mean, there were a lot. Let me just rattle off a few. So there was this guy, the founder of Alidaid, Farzad, I believe Mostashari. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing his last name, but he's this doctor who worked in public health, worked in the Obama administration, and now he's starting this uh, company basically to try and make primary care work better, to finally like incentivize doctors to keep you healthy instead of you know paying them when you get sick. Mm -hmm. And like, A, the idea was interesting, and B, he was just like, a delightful guy and a great talker. So let's go with that one. He came to mind. He's great. Listen to that one. I'll do one more. I'll do one more. Because this one is kind of underrated if you look at the headline. In fact, I regretted the headline. It did worse than my typical podcast because it had it had quilt in the headline. It was like patching together a quilting empire, I think, was the headline. What was that guy's name? Doan. Al Doan. That's his name. Okay. Um, 
He's just so charming and a great talker. Go lis- listen to that show. Like, you don't think you're interested in quilts, but this guy is great. I I will say that as someone who listens to a lot of different types of podcasts, I find myself pulled into topics I wouldn't necessarily be interested in just based on the topic because sometimes the guests are just really compelling. Like I would not I don't care about quilting, but if the person talking about it is compelling and interesting and and you know, there's a cool story around it, like you find yourself kind of pulled in. So yeah. and I mean in that instance, you know, this guy is a great entrepreneur. It's it's about, you know, building a company and like figuring out how to do it. It's about social media. You know, he basically made his mom a social media star. It's about like making a business in this rural town where not a lot is going on. So there's a lot in it uh, that's, you know, you don't have to care about quilting. I don't care about quilting. And I love that show. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, thanks for having me. Good luck. I hope, uh, hope you rock it up the charts on this one. Yeah, this is this is going to make us. This is this is the one. We'll make each other. Well, the pie's going to get bigger. We're all going to get more pie. <laughs> love it, love it, absolutely, ladies and gentlemen. Jacob Goldstein, former co-host of Planet Money, has been spent over the past year building. What's your problem? Check it out. Put it in your feed. Subscribe to it and keep listening. And if you really want to learn about money, please buy his book, Money: The True Story of a Made Up Thing. Jacob, we'll see you next time. Hey friends, hope you enjoyed that great conversation that we just had with Jacob. As always, we give our answers to these hard questions. We'd love to, right, Jeff? It's our favorite thing to do. Jacob gives his answers as well, but it's up to you to find your answers to those questions. You can do it. We believe in you. All right, Jeff. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>